Hey everyone, Tom here, Alf Metallica, back with another episode, and I just want to say, I'm not going to mention Metallica at all on this episode. This is something that I wanted to do for a long time, it's been a while in gestation. I'm going to go through my top 10, in no particular order, favourite instrumental albums. Uh, you know, if you've listened to the show, you know that I love instrumental music, I love Metallica's instrumental, oh, I just mentioned them, but, you know, I love their instrumentals, and, um, I love the, uh, it's not really a genre, is it? Because we're going to go across multiple genres as we go through here. We're going to talk about, uh, you know, guitar shredders. We're going to talk about more ambient trios. We're going to talk about 70s prog bands that did soundtracks to novellas. Uh, we're going to get into post-rock as well and math rock and all that stuff. So, you know, I just thought this may be of interest to some people. I always love when podcasters go a little bit off the reservation and just talk about their favorite records or try and turn people onto stuff they might not have heard before. So, uh, so yeah, just a thing as well before we get into it. Um, I record, started recording this episode when I was quite drunk, so you will hear this in a moment. Uh, the quality is about to change quite starkly. So I was um, going to see my friend, I think, or I was out, and I uh, had a few beers and I was walking there, and I didn't really fancy listening to a podcast or listening to an album or calling a mate or something. I fancied just doing a podcast. So I got my iPhone, I held it to my mouth, and I think the first two or three albums that I'm going to talk about, I recorded, at the time I've been doing this intro a few months ago, you know, at the start of 2020, I recorded this stuff, so I kind of left the episode on Audacity for a while, and now I've came back to it recently and recorded the rest of the album, so just in case, just, you know, just to prepare you, um, the couple of albums will be a bit like, you know, a mic field recording, and then the rest of them I've recorded in my living room, like the majority of Alf Metallica stuff, so uh, essentially how this album's going to work is I'll play a little clip from the record, I'll discuss the record, you know, five or six minutes, tell you how I got into it, what I love about it etc i just kind of rambled on this i didn't have too many notes here and there but i did find it quite easy even though it is more difficult i think to describe instrumental music especially because most of this stuff i'm gonna guess you haven't heard like just because it's quite niche like some of these records especially are quite obscure i mean instrumental music is obscure as a thing and this is kind of you know a microcosm within a microcosm if you will so uh yeah just before we get into that Follow us at MetallicaPod, as always. Get in touch with me, MetallicaPod at gmail.com. Let me know what you think of these records. Let me know what your favourite instrumental albums are, because I love listening to this sort of music, more than any other sort of music. Like, I love just hearing what people can do uh, without vocals, without melodies in the conventional sense. And, um, yeah, so let me know over there if you enjoy this stuff. Patreon's there. So this episode would have been on Patreon for a couple of weeks before it drops on the main channel. So you get premium access there. You get a little pay-per-view, as it were. Uh, iTunes, leave us through on iTunes. Please tell a friend about the show. If you want to hop on the show and discuss Metallica or just discuss music, because, you know, this is always going to be a Metallica show, of course, but our, our main goal, uh, you know, our reason for being is over now. I've reviewed every single song with people all over the world. And, um, you know, okay, maybe there might be one or two live things that we haven't touched, but we've done all the studio albums and we've done all the, you know, the B-sides and, and whatever. And, you know, Volturas, all the songs that didn't quite get released or were half done and stuff like that. So, I'm, of course, always going to talk about Metallica, but I just want to talk about music in general because that's what I'm so passionate about, uh, like the rest of you as well. So, uh, again, I'm blabbering on, but it's going to be that sort of episode. Hopefully, uh, there's a few records in here that, that you enjoy or maybe you're aware of and you've never really heard anyone uh, talk of at length. So, um, yeah, let's get into it with the first one. Mm-hmm. 
So the first album that I want to get to is a band that I'm currently, you know, listening to daily. It's a band that I've been obsessed with, a band that uh, I'm looking forward to seeing live twice in the new year. We're just about to get into 2020. I'm going to see them in Coventry. I'm actually playing on my birthday, March 5th, in my hometown, probably my favourite band currently. Uh, They're the Aristocrats. I'm sure I mentioned them before. Uh, They're a rock fusion trio kind of a super group that I didn't really appreciate when I first got into them. Um, Guthrie Govan is their lead guitar player. All the band members have double initials, by the way. I don't know why I need to point that out to you, but I saw that on uh, a YouTube comment, and it kind of plays testament to their synchronicity, to their electricity and chemistry together. Uh, Brian Bella, BB, he's on the bass, and Marco Minimum. Uh, is on drums. Marco, who I became familiar with, the brilliant Dream Theater documentary, if anyone's seen that, where they're auditioning replacement drummers uh, for John Portnoy and, uh, sorry, <clears throat> for Mike Portnoy, and they have loads of people on there, like, you know, Thomas Lang, and, and Marco's also on there, and then Mike Mangini goes on to take that spot. So these are players who I was familiar with, but encountering this sort of music is really, to me, probably the epitome of, um, you know, just exciting, uh, edifying fusion bass, quite thrashy in places and playful, and just so much devastating playing. Like, you know, one of the songs that I just played a clip of is Cocktail Umbrellas. You know, really long song with elongated solo pieces, uh, a kind of mournful, elegiac bass part that's very searching, but it's just the... um, pentatonic riffing of Guffrey that rides through it is absolutely irresistible um, the way the songs are able to turn on a dime these are kind of quite you know they're really really fun energetic romps but they're so intelligently put together and often at the start they can be slightly hard to decipher because they feel maybe a bit more repetitive at parts and then way more frantic at others um, but the band are comfortable in so many different genre moulds, like, um, you know, the songs are called, like, Oh No, for example, number four, which is O, uh, four H's, N, four O's. So, you know, they have that kind of, like, almost nerdy appreciation, like this kind of, you know, math nerd sort of thing that confront these time signatures uh, in quite crazy devastations. But um, sort of country stuff on here as well, Louisville Stomp is definitely one of my favourites. That's more of a deep-fried Dixie Dregs picking type thing. Um, and finally living the dream the final two songs that close it like there's just a certain sense of like it's so hard to get a balance with these instrumental tracks where it's riff and then solo and you know like uh, Joe Cetrinani for example I haven't put on this top 10 I know his discography very well I respect Joe I respect Chickenfoot I respect the Squares which was the first band that he was in I think they did a remaster recently it was on 80 Trunk listened to a bit of it it wasn't too bad but um, you know he falls into that unfortunately. Um, not that the riffs aren't great. Not that the albums aren't great. Um, stuff we laid a little overrated in my eyes, but stuff like Circles and Summer Song and, you know, Ceremony, The Extremist Friend, you know, Rubina, which closes the live in San Fran double disc. Supremely good live album that I probably would include if I was just doing live albums rather than album albums. But, um, yeah, the reason Joe isn't here is because he doesn't kind of have that... Like, Guthrie has such invention and ferocity and fire with his playing and just the way the certain ways that he picks notes is this you know i'm a guitar player but i'm not like a technical kind of whiz or anything but i am someone who's very passionate about the art of guitar playing and um the artisanal way that he approaches his solos is a certain sense of having a the string already bent and he picks it back down and then flurries off the lucato and he just has a there's very noticeable marks of his playing throughout he loves a dissonant squash of chords to introduce a new sequence so 
yeah guys I know it's hard to speak about music you haven't heard <laughs> which I'm sure a lot of people has maybe heard this album but it's hard to talk get across exactly what you love about it especially if it's fucking instrumental fusion rock but um, yeah cannot go crazy enough about this really and um, it's a stunning stunning piece of work they're four albums deep now this is still their best in my eyes um, by quite a margin uh, even though Trey Calaveras saw them on that tour um, great song as well you know they're still doing a lot of that sort of you know sub and fried sort of stuff and a lot of those more um, exploratory pieces and then their fourth album as well is terrific and again seeing them twice if you like what you heard and you're in the UK or Europe or whatever or in America definitely look out for these guys um, these guys in terms of just quality are probably like number one currently here um, they floor me every time person I want to speak about is Steve Vai. You know, Steve Vai, a very divisive figure in many ways. Very misunderstood, I feel, Steve Vai is, um, despite his popularity and acclaim. He's almost a byword for alien technical guitar wizardry. And he has those giant hands and that slightly extraterrestrial vibe about Steve. I love Steve. Um, you know, he's just one of those guys that people know outside of the sport, like Michelangelo Basho or, or whatever. So, you know, he has that, he has that baggage. He maybe has a certain um, pomposity to him, you know, for the love of God, etc. Or he just has an overly wanky, crossroadsy persona that rubs you the wrong way. Like, you know, I totally get that. And I think some of his best stuff is when he wasn't necessarily, you know, the limelight was squarely on him. Like his stuff with David Lee Roth, for example, is astonishing, those two albums. Skyscraper's even good. You know, Eatman Smile, everyone talks about Eatman Smile, rightly so, rightly so. Sensate, like, Joy Boy. Incredible, all of that stuff. Uh, Ladies Night in Buffalo as well. Um, you know, one of those players that just, he's a bit like a Mark Knopfler, a bit like an Eddie. Like, he'll just, he'll, he'll bounce off the singer, but it won't be annoying. Like, it'll just, it'll, you know, make the whole song better for it. It just adds to that kind of, um, that mastery, that virtuosity that, that he had and has. But, um, yeah, I want to focus on to his solo stuff. And Peter, who was on the show before, uh, my cousin Peter White, who introduced me to Metallica, and we did uh, St. Anger. That was a really cool episode as well. We spoke a lot about those origins. Uh, you know, he inevitably got me into Vi. Um, I think it was for the love of God that I first heard and enjoyed. And it, to me, it was still novel then that, oh, there's albums full of instrumentals and, you know, very much seeing the guitar lead as the vocal lead in that sense. And, you know, of course it is, but it isn't as well. And not minding that. And I think the first Vi record that I got was one of his latter pieces that, um, you know, is not immediately accessible, but certainly not as alienated as his early stuff. Um, the Ultra Zone, not in AAC Ultra, which has a tribute to uh, Frank Zappa on there. Zappa, I am going to mention later on this top 10. Uh, but uh, yeah, great song called Frank on there as well. But yeah, you know, I, again, it wasn't me sort of just, you know, slack jawed at these guys' kind of um, theatrics. It was more just, you know, again, 
the, the, the songs themselves that came through. So I want to talk about Alien Love Secrets because Alien Love Secrets ultimately pairs a lot of Void out. You know, it's a trio record. Um, I think it was recorded after Fire Garden, maybe before, but kind of after Passion and Warfare and you know, Vi really, it's like him being a virtuoso guitar player is only just part of like the whole stew uh, that gets projected forth on those records, like just in terms of um, lyrically the concepts and in terms of the overtures and the whole track listing and, you know, all of that stuff is um, is expertly put together or quite nauseating in some ways, I suppose. So I want to push you towards, if you've not heard it already, Alien Love Secrets, because it is, you know, not only is it very accessible, um, there's a lot of his slower stuff in there, which I think is really where he shines. Really when he has the kind of subtle lilt and groove going for him, like in The Boy from Seattle, which is ostensibly um, a kind of pickup bridge Hendrix type, you know, um, uh, I'm going to see tomorrow or think I'm going to, what's that song called? You know, like those sort of Hendrix hammer-ons at the start. Kind of plays on that, love that. Um, Die to Live as well which is one of his grander pieces where he hangs on certain chords like that A in the star and just has, he's kind of backing himself up with some real cheeky, awesome notes. I love this bit in that song as well when it gets really slow and all the delay folds come back in as well. It feels like organic life sprouting or something, Mr. Vi. It's pretty electric. There's, you know, again, straight up... um, attack from him as well with the intro bad horsey people might be familiar with that um his live london dvd from 2003 i'm pretty sure it opens with that or shy well that's one of the first things as we've kind of like this it goes all dark and he's just wearing this headset and it, that's the only thing glowing in the room it's really fucking cool but the actual song itself you know it's a heavy sort of drop d uh groove force that rolls through and again he's backing himself up by doing the whole like yeah Really cool song. I'm sure a lot of people have heard that's one of his trademark songs. Another trademark is on this fucking quite short but quite exceptional album, Tender Surrender. Tender Surrender, which is pound for pound the best weight, uh, weights. Top weights just comes to my lips immediately. The best Steve Vai song? Certainly in his emotive category in the sense the way it builds the way it carves you know it's kind of octave shifting at the start very enigmatic and eastern and just has this beautiful tension to it riding throughout it explodes of course it explodes in this huge display towards him that is still doesn't sacrifice an inch of heart you know a lot of people would would shudder at the note count here but uh you know let me assure you it's a dynamite experience. I'm trying to think what else is on the record as well. Again, I haven't really got my notes. I'm just walking these streets. Can you hear the cars? Can you hear the people? But uh, Yo-Yo Gak, Kill the Guy with the Ball, I think is on there as well. But um, there's loads of I you can point to. You know, I've recently been getting into his debut, Flexible, properly, which I really like, which is, again, very, very ambition sprawling. Uh, Fire Garden that I mentioned before. I've not really listened to Sex and Religion. Um, and his newer stuff. There was a cover, an instrumental cover... Um, of his stuff, Piano Reductions, where it was him and I forget the name of the guy, the piano player, I think it was Mike Keneally, maybe, I don't think it was, though, uh, transposing Vi's stuff on there, and there's a song called Sisters, and I think Die to Live's on there as well, which is off this record, so, um, yeah, that's another one, Alien Love Secrets, Steve Vi, check it out.
Okay, and next up is another band that I am absolutely gaga for. I was introduced to these by one of my closest friends, a guy that I met in uni, in the first day of uni, Alex Cottrell, who did the theme song for Albert Dalek. I'm sure you've heard this story. But yeah, he introduced me to Toe. Toe are a rock, instrumental Japanese band, quite ambient in places, very clean as well, which is quite unique. They build some just heart-rending landscapes, really, with such power and heft and emotion, all couched within a percussive bass, very drum-led, very splashy. Um, I don't know many exact details about Toe, but I idolised Toe. Uh, saw them in Bristol at Arc Tangent a few years ago, Math Rock Festival, and I think most of the people there were like me, were in disbelief that we witnessed the guys play. I think they rarely do European things, but they did a London thing few years before but uh yeah i want to talk about toe i think this is their second third album the book about my idol plot on a vague anxiety i believe it's called um you know again with toe it's interesting because half this album is in japanese in the song titles obviously it doesn't matter it's instrumental but it you don't quite know what they're called and some of them do have english names and they all translate quite poetically and poignantly and all that i know is that i don't all that i understand is that i don't understand which is a real standout track love that song you know the music is as i say completely entrancing to me i think it's so original i never heard it attacked from this way and just the fact that they're japanese and uh you know it's all it's all in those characters and it has that mood as well it has that tranquility about it and that kind of eastern mystery but it's still very universal and really endearing and the band can be completely rhythmic focused and energetic and attacking or very meditative um you know i think the most famous song goodbye does have a bit of vocal towards the end and that's more of a sort of cliched like post-rock banger everyone's going mad towards the end rubato like but um you know in terms of this album in particular i just think this is some of their best work um that plays through there aren't too many of the sort of mini diversions that they go for or um one two plays like a lot of these are quite quick um just masterful pieces really a band on top form um who can just carve out at will real memorable um just beautiful pieces really really love this album really really love the band all together but i think this is definitely their peak Okay, from now on, I'm going to be recording this from my living room. The quality will improve vastly. And the next album that I want to talk about is The Mystery by Tommy Emmanuel. Tommy Emmanuel being this acclaimed 
often regarded as one of the greatest guitarists of all time in terms of his um, astonishing technique and versatility. This guy is a fingerstyle acoustic player, uh, CGP, that follows his name. He's a certified certified guitar professional uh, as deigned by Chet Atkins and he embodies a lot of Atkins style. You know, Tommy at his core is a kind of fleet-fingered, percussive, very rhythmic acoustic player, but certainly with a real pop melodic seam within his playing. And, you know, say someone like Michael Hedges, for example, or John Garm, who, you know, really push it in terms of the capability of the instrument sonically, you know, they're, they're tapping and rapping on it. But Tommy's still doing that as well. But Tommy, to me, is probably the ultimate example of a real songwriting instrumentalist. And the mystery is effortless to me, really. It is an absolute joy to listen to. It really does it really does feel mysterious it's enigmatic at times like tommy is on that same wavelength on a certain level you know most people may think in that if they're not listening to a bunch of his music as like a steve Vai or you know these people are going to get into as just a guy who can fucking rip the instrument apart you know and we see this on a couple of songs on this record namely the first two that open it the cantina sinise and game show rag slash cannonball rag these are these wild exhibitions of playing and technique and just a real kind of rip roaring carnival kind of feel to it but the for most part this album is you know very inward you know very pensive and you know quite a quiet sort of record in many ways with some mantra-like melodies that just carve into your heart like really some of these songs like I remember Lewis and Clark sticking out to me early on which is kind of a song that builds slow and has Tommy introducing these melody lines and you know going off onto them in the distance and then they get reinforced as we gallop forward to stuff that inherently is more questioning and just kind of fascinating to untangle and experience songs like The Mystery, songs like Cowboy's Dream, uh, songs like The Digger's Waltz, which I particularly adore. I think the intro to that, the delicacy uh, to which it is built is delicious. Anatello's Birthday, Antonello's Birthday, sorry, on this one as well. Um, the harmony in that, it's a much more of a playful song. Uh, and So It Goes, for many, many years, I just knew And So It Goes as a Tommy track love the melody it certainly stood out to me because it just it had such a a graceful power and it felt you know more of a kind of songwriterly track but i didn't know that it was of course a billy joel cover a huge billy joel song and this is another standout on here throughout really you know i'm looking at the songs that close this record that's the spirit footprints keep it simple all very similar uh, in their tone and Tommy Emmanuel's done loads of fucking incredible stuff. And, you know, his back catalogue, as well as the stuff he did early on with his brother, who recently passed away, rest in peace, Phil Emmanuel, another incredible player. Uh, you know, Tommy's done loads of collab albums with Phil, with Terra Firma, uh, with Chet Atkins, did The Day the Finger Pickers Took Over the World. You know, other Tommy albums from this era, an album called Only, which came out in like 2001, almost as good as The Mystery. So many good, so many good live records as well from Tommy. I've seen Tommy live three times. I remember the best time that I probably saw him was the first time. God, when was that? That was like the winter of 2011 in Liverpool. Uh, and it was just a, you know, a glorious occasion. Remember Gareth Pierce? Gareth Pearson? Gareth Pearson. This Welsh tornado. Tom actually did a song about this guy on his next album, After the Mystery, Little by Little, which is also a really good album, uh, called The Welsh Tornado, about this guy, because this guy was just so amazing and still is. You know, wrote some brilliant records. But 
yeah, saw Tommy there. Obviously, people probably know Tommy's quite a viral guitar player in that way. Uh, you know, his Beatles medleys, etc. But I love the mystery, and it's well worth checking out. So the next album I want to talk about is, you know, a really obscure album. I mean, these are all kind of really obscure in a way. I'm not even saying it in a braggadocious way. Like, I could have went way more obscure and there are so many. I mean, there are so many bands in so many directions, isn't there? But almost because this music itself is so eclectic in a way, you know, so just away from the glare of the mainstream that it can become a real kind of fascinating journey to go through these things. But yeah, Caspian, You Are the Conductor. This is from 2005. Caspian being an American post-rock band um i think i don't know too much about the band biography to be honest with you they're from beverly massachusetts apparently they've gone since 2001 uh this is their debut thing as i say and um you know i used to be a huge huge fan of post-rock and really this is one of the first things that i found in that genre that cemented my love for it and post-rock is open to so many different interpretations but essentially to me it means using rock after the means of kind of what it was originally intended for so using drums using guitars but you know not having these big wailing solos or you know lead breaks by the singers or whatever but rather having quite lush pieces at times quite antagonistic uh mysterious mostly different out there for the most part instrumental certainly the best post-rock is instrumental and um yeah i mean so much of post-rock listen to a lot of post-rock is generic as fuck and boring and like i don't mind exposing the sky and mogwai and stuff like that but all that building and building and building and getting towards it like it just becomes a little bit of a crutch for me um at least in terms of songs that i enjoy deep down like the are some stuff like Explosion Sky that I mentioned before that I do like, and Caspian certainly went in that direction later on, but here they are such expert instrumentalists, and from the off Quo Vis is probably the most traditional track, it's the 1 minute 16 opener, which builds and gets heavy and heavy, but again they're kind of dispensing uh, with that level of indulgence the six tracks here uh, the last track is quite long, almost 10 minutes, but most of them are, you know, quite um, sizable, quite digestible so, further up to me which just it connotes this euphoric journey, this angelic ascent. And there are certain times after the main crescendo, I think in the two-minute mark, um, the guitar lines, the tones just sound to me like this ethereal, angelic language. There's something celestial about it. tones that sort of dripping chorus lines and that lovely honeycomb reverb um 
further in, which is the third track, kind of strides ahead from this one, and again becomes a little bit more droney and a little bit more um, expressive in certain layers, in certain stratas. But what I want to get across with this album is just the, you know, the sense of atmosphere. Like so much of this post rock stuff can feel quite, um, you know, contrived and maybe missing uh, the vocals, maybe missing some sort of thing to thematically tie it together. Um, and it's so easy for them just to lean into the build up and the breakdown and, and, you know, whatever. But I think here, I think in the constraints of an EP, Caspian really proves himself. Loft, I love. Loft opening with a, uh, you know, real gorgeous harmonized guitar riff and then real heavy bass underneath, really stereo, like a kind of sludgy bass. The bass feels very much under the water, kind of, you know, sub-seismic in certain ways when it pulls forward. Love the sound of the bass across this record. Last Rites, the last song which begins, you know, echoing through like an empty steeple wooden roof or something. It just has this sense of um, isolation, which is palpable and again is always led by the guitar. And the kind of when everything drops in about three, four minutes in this song is just beautiful. The stained glass chords ringing through. And that's what Caspian had as well. Caspian had real beauty. They really understood that this genre is not only meant to astound on a technical level, but also kind of draw comparisons to the sublime, you know, to, to witnessing something above and beyond, something preternatural. So I would push you in Caspian's direction. Um, you know, this is probably not something you've listened to. I don't think Caspian are that big of a band. They did continue. Um, they've got 139,000 Spotify monthly listeners, so that's something at least. And it looks like their most played songs. There's nothing off You Are The Conductor. You Are The Conductor is on Spotify, however, 2011. So uh, definitely go find that out. 27 minutes of glorifying post-rock goodness. <laughs> Okay, the next album that I want to talk about is another one by another incredible guitar virtuoso, of course, Mr. Paul Gilbert. And this is his record from 2008, Silence Followed by a Deafening Roar. It's interesting with Paul because he didn't release any instrumental, fully instrumental albums you know, like 20 odd years into his career. So most people know him starting with Racer X, that classic, you know, Sunset Strip sort of speed metal idea, Street Lethal. Then going into Mr. Big, Mr. Big, who I absolutely adore. Paul did the first four albums with Mr. Big, the first two of which are masterpieces in my eyes the follow-up so the first two being the self-titled and then lean into it lean into it especially one of the all-time greatest rock albums for me personally in terms of just that that stadium rock those those giant choruses those inventive compositions him and billy trading back and forth for eric martin what a voice eric martin had a great solo career that i got into through mr big pat torpy as well r.i.p pat torpy on the drums giant you know powerhouse of a drummer so Paul left Mr. Big, Richie Cotson took over, and then Paul went on a solo career. Paul released some really cool albums, Burning Organ and Flying Dog and stuff like that, Alligator Farm, a lot of people might know. Um, but, you know, he was still shredding all over the place, but it was less 
kind of Pat Travers and more Lennon-esque, very Beatles-y kind of bubblegum pop to a certain extent. So it was intriguing that I think it was in 2006 that he did Get Out My Yard, which is his first instrumental album. Again, terrific. Like, it's by a hair. I'm going with Silence. I think Silence is a little tighter overall in some of its ideas. You know, Paul... If you're familiar with Paul's playing, he is one of these million miles a note shredders, but he's an incredible soulful dude. You know, he's he's a, a teacher as well on the side. And nothing really feels wasted in spite of the surplus of, uh, you know, Mixolydian mayhem that he'll fire out there. So, you know, what I'm trying to say is so many of these songs are very, very singable and enjoyable. And uh, Norwegian Cowbell, for example, starts with some really well put together chords. Like the sort of the, the, the tones in there against the of the cowbell playing in is wonderful. You know, these are songs from that kind of Saturani cloth to a certain extent where the riff gets introduced and then the lead line will take you a place, but um, just so much more exciting uh, than pretty much anything Satcher's done, in my opinion. There are, you know, straight-ahead riffers, really, that play into a more funk contest, like songs like... um, the Rhino and Bronx 1971. Then there's more classical ideas. Uh, I still have that other girl and Sweet Model of a, a very, very delicate uh, cherub-like pieces. Um, the Gargoyle is, you know, full-on 80s throwback, really, with all the harmonies. It feels stripped out of a, you know, a Dokken record or something like that. But it's just that merging really that Paul does with those pop sensibilities into just a straight-up face-melting context. Probably my favourite song is Boltaco Satano. The, um, myself and my friend Ryan, I mean, you know, we're both obsessed with Paul Gilbert. I think we've seen him like five or six times. I just saw him last year in Birmingham, uh, my hometown. I mean, I live in Oxford at the moment, where he wasn't even doing technically a concert. It was more like a, a you know, a kind of clinic, a seminar. And we've seen him at guitar shows, and we've seen him solo, and we've seen him with Mr. Big as well. But, uh, yeah, I'm pretty certain that me and Ryan could sing the entirety, all four minutes 13 of Boltaco Saturno, uh, to you, just because, I mean, the melody is so fantastic and addictive, and Paul is always entrenched in that kind of pentatonic uh, exploration. But it goes into all these different directions as well, and it's always about the song. You know, he's not kind of off on the deep end, shredding wildly i mean looking at this track list as well a lot of the songs are about three minutes kind of pop song length um but i adore this i think this is a very accessible record incredibly fun as well and you feel that when he rips into the solos especially with boltaco and norwegian bell and stuff like that he's really earned it like he's really kind of laid the foundations of the track itself and then when he just gets to get into that guitar hero mode it's just outstanding the opening track as well the total track silence followed by a deafening roar the riffs, the the way he puts together certain ideas and plays on them, like the riff itself is da na 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 ba da ba da ba da na, and then like he, it's kind of hard to explain without listening to it. I'm not sure what clip I'm going to use beforehand, but um, you know the way he'll ape that line and take it into a different direction. This is um an insane release. You know, Paul would go on to release more instrumental music. You know, in fact, he kind of had a. a a trilogy here as it were so fuzz universe uh, which followed is again kind of on that same track later you have um, a cover album that he did stone uphill pushing man uh working for the weekends on there which is a pretty good cover of his latest record certainly has grown on me behold electric guitar it's a little looser it's a little more jammy where there's a precision um to get out my yard 
Fuzz Universe and Silence followed by a deafening roar that I just, you know, continue to idolise. I've been listening to this record since it came out. So I've been listening to it since I was, you know, 16. I I remember buying it. I remember um, getting it signed as well. I think I got Billy Sheehan to sign. No, I got Billy Sheehan to sign at an actual size. And I had Silence there or or so. I can't quite remember what went down there. But, um, But yeah, Paul is a god. I, I think Paul Gilbert is just, you know, one of the dudes, really, and, and someone that I look up to and someone that I can't even hope to emulate, you know, one half note of what he can achieve. But, uh, yeah, he's an insane player. And definitely check out this album. It's uh, terrific. Okay, something slightly different here. I want to talk about a band called Dirty Free. They are a Australian trio. Uh, they have their roots in the Bad Seeds. Warren Ellis leads on violin. Uh, there's a drummer and a guitar player as well. Let me just find their names because I definitely want to do them justice. So, um, yeah, we have Warren Ellis, a classically trying violinist on the front there. And um, Mick Turner on guitar and Jim White on drums. And these are more mood pieces. And, you know, I know that phrase can, can scare people to a certain extent. That's not to say that there isn't a lot of anger and angst and, and, and wilderness wrapped up in these tracks. But the the canvases that they create with these instruments, you know, the guitar is not the lead instrument here, which I love. The guitar is often arpeggiating and, you know, taking notes, as it were. It's Warren that's, that's firing off into the distance. And, um, you know, I initially got into this band their earlier records, like their self-titled and like horse stories, which are these kind of more overdriven, you know, maniacal meditations where the, the violin will lead and the guitar will try and catch up. And, you know, they, it's havoc on the record. But the, the songs I want to talk about now is Ocean Songs, which is quite ambient for the most part. So these are all tracks which are connoting, you know, a, a tidal sense of abstraction. So we have songs like Sea Above, Sky Below and uh, Distant Shore and the rest restless waves very meditative very poignant you know like the sea itself it can be very tranquil and then within a you know within a turn you know within a a certain choice there or a movement everything will be crashing down it'll be cataclysm and I just think it's remarkable you know when I first got into this band I knew they were something special. I just felt they were something special. Like, you know, they just had such an authenticity and, and such an originality as well. But encountering Ocean Songs, you know, I... Um you know, I've got a poetic bent, as you know, and I think like anyone who's interested in in poetry or or language or feeling, it's it's the sea, isn't it? How can you not be obsessed with the sea as a metaphor and just a, a facet of nature, of the sublime? And this album, Ocean Songs, just 
really does justice to it. Like, I want to push people towards Last Horse in the Sand, where, you know, the, the guitar is very dry, and Warren Ellis kind of rises above. Often he's harmonising with himself as well. There is a real uplift here, and the drums, you just feel that every tom hit is just charged, you know. So, um, yeah, if you guys haven't heard of Dirty Free, definitely check that out. Um, I think people know about this band. Looking on Spotify, again, not really a, a marker of how popular they are, but... Um, 40,000 monthly listeners ain't bad. And uh, their latest album, which, God, I remember when that came out. I was at uni, so I listened to it all the time at work, Towards the Low Sun, uh, 2012. So quite a while ago, eight years that came out. Cinder, prior to that as well, is very, very good. Um, Warren Ellis as well. I, I, I mean, I'm going to kind of cheat here. I'm going to include two albums by him because he does a lot of instrumental work with Nick Cave. You may know Nick Cave is not only a, a genius songwriter and artiste in his own right and a you know, screenwriter and an author. He also does soundtracks. He's done a lot of soundtrack work. Um, for me, it's the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Like that is like the the the, the crunchy guitar, the horns, the, the the sense of desolate landscapes that the two work together on. There's a lot of violin in it as well. There's a lot of fiddle. Um, I love that record as well. Uh, they've also done the soundtracks for the Proposition. Uh, by John Hillcoat, great Australian filmmaker. In fact, Nick Cave wrote the script for that. Uh, that's a really, really good film as well with Guy Pearce and John Hurt, kind of like a, uh, I guess a Western, but but in in Australia, in kind of the, those kind of convict era. Ray Winston's in that as well. Uh, they did stuff for The Road, which John Hillcoat um, directed, you know, the Cormac McCarthy adaptation with uh, Viggo Mortensen. And Michael K. Williams, <laughs> Omar from The Wire, is in that briefly as well. But um, But yeah, again, Ocean Songs to me, it's kind of, it works on multiple levels, you know, it is a great background record, but it's kind of not one that fades into the background, it kind of elevates your whole surroundings, and I have to listen to it if I'm making notes of things, but I'm just, I'm just struck by the movements, there's so many memorable ideas on here, there's actually a 60, there's quite some long epics on here, uh, Authentic Celestial Music is 10 minutes, Deep Waters is 16 minutes, and it just, it is remarkable how it really puts you there, you really feel like you're on a little dinghy, and you can't see any horizon, there's just this music surrounding you, this is uh, sublime, absolutely sublime record. Uh, next record I want to talk about is from ATA. I mean, again, this is kind of cheating because this is more of a compilation than a quote-unquote instrumental record. But it is all one by one guy, one mind, that being Frank Zappa. Zappa, I'm getting more and more and more into, you know. And it's one of those things where 
I'm kind of having to reevaluate everything because he was so ahead of his time, still ahead of his time. You know, this is a guy who, in 66 with Freakout, was not only skewering the dominant hippie class, but his sonic experiments towards the end of that record are unbelievable. If anyone's heard Help, I'm a Rock as well, just the layering of voices. I've not really experienced such a kaleidoscopic echo and reverb. It's um, it's something else. But of course, amongst all his other preoccupations, um, you know, Zappa was a... Uh, Uh, a lead guitar player you know a real virtuoso and this album guitar is uh, a collection of various things you know it's kind of two hours it's kind of hard for me to pinpoint you know this song this song but stuff like for Dwayne for example which emulates Dwayne Allman and his slide uh, exhibition and stuff like uh, watermelon and Easter hay which can be uh, more chaotic and 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 frenzied and frenetic but um this is an album that this is one of the newer records here like stuff like the Paul album and um you know Tommy Emmanuel I've lived with for like a decade now Rezappa's still new to me like you know obviously Steve Vai, who I mentioned before, I think he was 19 when he joined Zappa's band, and he actually did a song uh, in tribute to Zappa after he passed away in, I want to say, 94. Zappa, I know he's very young, sadly, uh, but he left so much material. Holy fuck, still coming out. So, um, yeah, he did a song called uh, Frank on the Ultrazone, 98's Ultrazone, which is my first Vi album, which is a you know really, really good listen. So, um, but, but yeah, this, this record, I want to push people into this record. Songs like Do Not Pass Go, uh, Republicans, Were We Ever Really Safe in San Antonio? You know, Zappa was this guy who recorded everything, so I believe this kind of all came about of him looking back and kind of assembling uh, certain lead lines that he enjoyed. So there is this non-sequitur element to this record where you're just going from live performance to live performance. You're just going to the guitar breaks. You know, there's no vocals. There's no kind of indication of where we are otherwise in the context of the song. But his lead playing, there is such a kind of searching aspect to it. There is a kind of, you know, he really kind of throws everything out there and the note choices and the bends. And you never really feel... Like, you know, there's some certain guitar players that are in that mold where it can just become noodling, you know, it, for the sake of it. You know, and I'm a guitar player as well, and I've been working from home recently, so I have my acoustic guitar next to me all the time, working at the desk, and I'll just grab it and just play no notes that make any sense in any, you know what I mean? Just just kind of just nonsense to a certain extent, just enjoying it from my own masturbatory glee. But with Zappa, he has that kind of element, but you're always entranced, or at least I certainly am. Um, I hear a lot of Guthrie Govan, the aristocrats I mentioned before, in him, in the sense that, you know, there's this kind of... um, just, just again, frantic quality, you know, this kind of, it's layering ideal, and the sense that you don't want to hang anywhere for too long on the fretboard, you want to keep going, but also you want to hark back to certain melodies, and uh, yeah, Zappa's guitar, terrific compilation. Now I want to talk about, uh, you know, this band to me are such an important, unbelievable band. This is And Soul Watch You From Afar. 
So these guys are a kind of instrumental, how you say, post-rock, math-rock, uh, Northern Irish band who, um, you know, I discovered them in an interesting way. So people will be familiar with Zane Lowe. You know, he's one of our kind of tastemakers over here. And he had a show on BBC Radio 1 for many years. I think it was like kind of the evening show. I didn't listen to much radio when I was younger, but he used to do this thing called uh, The Hottest Record in the World. And basically what that would be was he would play like three songs or it was something like this again I'm kind of half remember this he would play three songs that were that were new and people would vote on them and you know people would tweet in and he'd get their review and stuff so anyway he'd play these three tracks and he played this one track which was the opening song from this album Set Guitars to Kill which I just blew me away it was so muscular it was so heavy but so intelligent as well and so addictive and exciting and the, the way the two guitars interacted like there was such um, a grit and, and, and vigour about this and the tone of these guitars the heaviness it feels so heavy like it beautifully produced this record absolute masterpiece anyway play these three songs and Secretars to, to Kill just knocked me out. But every, it made me kind of laugh at the time. I remember, like, everyone was sending all these messages. And no one even said anything about this song. Because, you know, it was quite audacious for saying to play an instrumental song on primetime radio. And most people don't give a fuck about that. Most people, I'm not going to say they don't understand it, but they just don't care to listen to that sort of stuff. They're craving the lyrics, craving the melody that you know, lead singer to tell them how to feel or whatever. So, but for me, I was just like, what the hell is this? So I got into that and then... Uh, eventually got into their debut album, which is a really cool cover, by the way. It's kind of like a Hieronymus Bosch sort of nightmare landscape stuff. But uh, but yeah, this is easily not even top 10 instrumental albums for me. This is top 10 albums um, for me. I just think the construction is insane. You know, the, the band are heavy. Uh, you can't get past that. But they don't waste any time. They're not kind of clobbering you over the head with that ideal you know for me ultimately it's uh, the variety of emotional landscapes that they can traverse so songs like um like great titles as well uh start a band don't waste time doing things you hate don't waste time doing things you hate is um really uh, it's such a joyous tune really you feel that the title of the song is embodied in the emotional uh you know display throughout it starts really slow ding, 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 ding. kind of these uh jumpy boppy arpeggios and then just builds builds slower and slower and slower and then just suddenly crashes all in and we get gang vocals towards the end and, and soaring melodies that are you know just tremoloed across but um it's a heavy record you know it's it's, it's an hour or so so there's some quite long songs on here there's 11 tracks on here uh, these riots are just the beginning it's probably my favorite song as well just because of just again the build like we mentioned before we caspian it is about the build and it's about justifying the time you spend there and the cathartic release within the songs and um yeah i cannot get enough of this record i just think it's so inventive as well it's so easy when you're in the confines of metal or heavy music to sound exactly the same as anyone else you know to chug in a slightly different way way or to resolve to this chord and then this you know to down tune this way or something but to actually create stuff that feels new and essential and innovative is rare and the band did this with this debut and the follow-up as well gangs I was lucky enough, I've seen them a few times, I actually saw them on the Gangs tour, so this was just when I started uni in 2010 in Liverpool and Alex who I mentioned before um he um you know, we went to this gig and we saw them on the Gangs tour and they were out of this world as well. Very small venue. Uh, the Casimir, which people from Liverpool may remember, unfortunately closed down. I saw Ghostface Killer play there as well, amongst several other bands. But um, but yeah, their debut in Gangs is great. And then unfortunately, as with most of these post-rock, math-rock bands, I'm a big fan of a lot of them, they get happier and they get more buoyant. And in doing that, 
sacrifice uh, a little bit of the value in my eyes. Uh, so I'm not saying that just because it's not heavy, it doesn't have any worth something, but I just don't think the songs are quite there. And I'm pretty sure they lost one of the, one of the guitar players left or something like that. So that certainly changed the dynamic. But those first two records, especially the self-titled debut um, from And So Watch You Afar is out of this world. Like, you know, if I was really to say one record that you guys should listen to and if you listen to this you'll probably listen to this through the paradigm valve Metallica and one record that I think you would connect with uh, it would be and so watch from afar's debut from 2009 I mean just if it ain't broke break it is terrific as well like this is I, I, I'm dumbfounded when I'm listening to this this I just I just think it's um top tier Okay, and the last album that I want to talk about is an album and a band that I've only got into really quite recently over the past year or so. A band called Camel, which are one of the more obscure kind of 70s prog bands, mostly instrumental band by trade. I discovered them through Discover Weekly on Spotify, which, you know, listens to your habits and algorithmically suggests things. And I can't remember exactly the song of theirs that I got recommended to. It was certainly one of their more popular ones, one of their more kind of freeform jams, you know, very kind of guitar-led, Santana-esque wigouts. And I really enjoyed it. So I started to dig deeper into this band Camel, you know, and found that they have quite a big fan base and quite a big legacy. And they're an interesting band in the sense that they would take novels as inspiration and write instrumental records based on the novels so there wouldn't be a story per se but it would kind of emulate and you know attempt to kind of um, establish sonic landscapes based on the source material and the album that I want to talk about today is called The Snow Goose so this is from their classic period it's obviously an instrumental concept album uh, based on a novella by Paul Gallico so it's basically about um, a lonely man named Ryan uh, I think that's his name, who nurses a wounded snow goose back to health with the help of a young girl that he befriended. And when the ghost is healed, it's set free. And uh, Ryder's later killed in Dunkirk. And, and the goose kind of symbolizes hope. and like. So it's all quite hokey <laughs> 70s stuff. But musically, it's outstanding. Um, the clip that you would have heard just before is from the song Ryder Goes to Town. Um, one of the greatest guitar solos I've ever heard. 
in my entire life the 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 pace the the patience the release the feel from Andrew Latimer who is the main guitar player who is quickly becoming one of my favorite guitar players I just find absolutely insatiable, so addictive to listen to, and just just the the release there, and you kind of know where the solo's going. Like it's a little bit on tracks, but it just it doesn't diminish anything from it. I think the playing's absolutely brilliant, and just throughout this record as well, quite accessible, uh, quite short the songs, quite gentle, quite ambient and reflective. You know, it relies more on beautiful textures than experimentation, per se. And, um, you know, uh, just musical excellence. You know, it has this sensual palette to it that I find very calming. So when that guitar solo came in, that stinging solo, it's quite surprising because the majority of the record is is much more laid back and elegantly placed. You know, it's a musical opus. And I'm sure a lot of people... Well, like myself, until that fated day when Spotify handed me Camel. Probably never heard of Camel. And they've got quite a few records, actually, where they adapt other novels. Um, and what I gather, it's the earlier stuff is the better stuff. Um, stuff like The Snow Goose, now called Moon Madness, um, Stationary Traveller as well. There's one, it might be Stationary Traveller. No, sorry, it's Nude, that is more about Japan in World War Two and that sort of idea. So they definitely go a lot of interesting places. And I think they're still together. I think ironically just as I got into them I think a week before they played in Leamington Spa which is about an hour away by train so I certainly would have seen them I missed out on them and it was quite weird actually I remember telling my dad about a year ago that I was getting into Camel and he was quite surprised he was like oh the Snow Goose like he he knew them as well like he had that record back in the day in the 70s so uh you know they have a certain popularity but um but yeah this album Snow Goose definitely worth getting into I'm still quite you know, early uh, in my admiration of it, but I, I had to put it in the top 10 because I think it's just a terrific piece of music throughout songs like Dunkirk, the theme, if you will, the flight of the snow goose. It feels very, um, you know, it has a kind of uh, tubular bells esqueness, some Herges Ridge, you know, Mike Oldfield, that sort of dimension to it. Really, really love this. All right, and there you go. There is my top 10 favorite instrumental albums. Or I should say, you know, I could probably do another top 10 list tomorrow, but these are albums that I wanted to talk about, albums that I love, albums that I think you will probably enjoy too if you're looking for something to listen to in these quarantine, lockdown, chaotic times. So just to repeat what the albums are, again, these are in no particular order, but the order of which I spoke of them. Uh, we start started with uh, what did we start? We started with Aristocrats, Culture Clash, uh, then Steve Vai's Alien Love Secrets, then Toes, the book about my idle plot on a vague anxiety. Tommy Emmanuel's The Mystery was next. Caspian's You Are the Conductor. Paul Gilbert's Silence, followed by a deafening roar. Dirty Free's Ocean Songs, with always talked about the assassination of Jesse James, which Warren Ellis and Nick Cave did. Great soundtrack. Next up was Ansel, which is from Afar's 2009 self-titled debut. Frank Zappa's guitar compilation. And finally, The Snow Goose by Camel. So yeah, again, let me know what you thought about this list. Get in touch with me, MetallicaPod at gmail.com with your favourite instrumental albums. MetallicaPod at, at MetallicaPod on Twitter. Follow us there. Uh, we're on various platforms, wherever the RSS feed is. We're on Spotify. Leave us a review on iTunes. Let me know what you want to see in the future. You know, I was thinking about doing like maybe top 10 favourite guitar players in the future or maybe just top 10 albums even, top 10 bands, something like that. You know, it doesn't all have to be Metallica. That's not that I'm not abandoning Metallica. I've got lots of cool stuff planned in the future as well. But uh, yeah, as always, guys, appreciate you listening stay safe wash your hands and uh listen to some more instrumentals (laughs) 